This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Simone Amelia Jordan, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It is an absolute honour. Yeah, wow. So we met in unusual circumstances. I think you tracked me down through Instagram, didn't you? I realised very quickly on Instagram that you and I seem to have a lot in common and I wanted to connect with you and get to know you better. So social media is the way we do that these days. Isn't that strange? Do you know, I have now, and I don't know if this is a coincidence, but I've met two people now via Instagram, because I'm a lot older than you, so it's not my form of contact usually, but she's young as well. What is pigeons? (laughs) (laughs) Karima from Sunday Kitchen. Do you know her? Oh, I do know her, and we met on Instagram as well. She is an Instagram stalker, I think. <laughs> I was She's at a, brilliant. I was at a dinner and I said, to her, how did I meet you? I'd just forgotten how I met her. And she said, oh, I stalked you on Instagram. I said, oh, right, yeah, yeah, that's how. <laughs> well, I guess that's how you meet. You know, you get to know people, you watch their profiles, you see what they're talking about, their views. It's almost kind of a, a cheat code really to getting to know someone in a mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Do you know, I know um, social media has a lot of negatives and it gets a lot of flack. Um, Mm. I understand all of that. And a lot of the criticism is correct and a lot isn't. But I have two views around it. One Mm. is I've met really nice people, right? Mm. But also, too, I feel as though your Instagram, whether you like it or not, is a representation of the real you. Even if you're trying to hide it with, you know, beautiful mm. photos, nice loaves of mm. bread, it says a lot about the person, I think, and I can mm. always see through it. I mean, you know, sure, if it's a cosmetic account or this account or whatever, no, I yeah. can't. But if it's if you're doing your own Instagram page, I know a lot about you. And Facebook, well, that's where our book reading community is. You know, we've got mm. over 300,000. And that mm. to me is a fine example of what Facebook is meant to be, where it's sharing yes. ideas and stories and whatever. So there are some positives. And now I would say Palestine and Gaza, because if we didn't have social media, Simone, you know this and I know this, you know, the mastheads weren't doing their job. They're only coming on board now. Listen, I think as someone who has worked in the media for my entire career, Cheryl, I have not watched mainstream news since October mm. 7 mm. because I knew I knew mm. I knew that there would be absolutely no background given to the horrendous attack that happened that day. Mm. I knew that there would be no history, no contextualization of why it happened and uh I think we were saying earlier off mic that there is a huge disconnect between older generations that get their news from mainstream mm-hmm. versus a majority of younger people, but there are older people on socials all the time too oh, that, yeah. is, that are seeing very close up 
what's going on on the ground. So, well, yeah, I mean, I I had been a subscriber to the New York Times for some years, and I unsubscribed. I mean, they were not just not doing their job. I think they were showing incredible bias. Mm. Again, not giving any context. But anyway, let me just introduce mm. you first because I think this is going to. We're going to have a very mm. big chat, lots of places to go. So in a way, Simone stalked me. So here we are. Mm. It turned out that she has a book and it's called Tell Her She's Dreaming. Mm. Simone grew up on the Central Coast, the whitewashed Central Coast in the 1980s, Lebanese Australian. Do you call yourself Lebanese Australian or an Australian Lebanese? Um, so I grew up for a couple of years on the Central Coast, but I mainly grew up in the inner west. But when I moved from the Central Coast was my huge culture shock, which is where the book starts. Uh yeah, I'm Lebanese and Greek Cypriot background. Uh, oh, right. but I okay. I do find it a little bit weird saying what I am because my family has been here for three generations. And so oh, right. You start to think, can I represent somewhere that I've been once, I barely speak the language, but I the book details how much I love and revere this Lebanese culture because it's my mother's side of the family. My parents got divorced when I was very little, so I had no connection to the Greek Cypriot side. And, yeah, it's, it's all about kind of chasing that identity. And I say in the introduction where most girls I grew up with ran away from their Lebanese heritage. I ran towards it. I was so hungry to be Lebanese because I, our family was so far removed because we, my great-grandparents came here in the early 1930s. So oh, right, so in, yours goes further back. My parents came oh, in yeah. the 1950s. Yeah, so we've been here quite a long time. And mm. they moved at a time, obviously, when the white Australia policy and you just weren't really able to be proud of who you were at all. So it got drummed out of my great-grandparents and my grandmother. My grandmother was 10 when she arrived with them. And so they get to my generation and I'm like, I want to eat all the Lebanese food. I want to say all the Lebanese curse words. I want to learn belly dancing. I want to do all the tropes because I was obsessed with finding my culture. So, yeah, it was an interesting experience. And then you throw in the hip-hop culture that I grew up on and, um, yeah, a mixed bag of tricks, definitely. Okay, I want to come back to identity, but I'll finish yeah. the introduction. Amelia felt like an outcast among her peers for years. Her lifeline was hip-hop then in its golden age. From girlhood, Simone recognised the art form's pro-black consciousness and the rapper's resonate words inspired her to embrace her own identity and back herself. From founding Australia's most successful hip-hop and R&B publication to moving to New York City and interviewing the biggest stars of the time as the editor of the world's most beloved rap magazine, Simone's inspiring story is about defying the odds to reach for your dreams. Tell Her She's Dreaming, the book, is a deeply personal story of family, culture and music that disrupts the long-held view that women, and racially diverse women especially, are limited in their power as bold, playful explorers. Okay, I want to know firstly how mm. you came to write this book and how you got a publishing contract because that's not easy. No, it's not. I, I never thought I'd get the chance to write this book but I always knew it was inside me and so the Ritual Prize which has shed Australia Oh the runs, Matt Ritual Prize yeah yeah, yeah I, I yeah. knew that oh wow yeah wow. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I know, and I know I, his wife by all accounts he sounded like a great person 
I've got to tell you, he was one of my favourite people in the industry and I had dinner with him not long before he died Um, and I'm friends with his beautiful widow. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. And Hannah gave a... Yeah, I haven't met Hannah in person. She gave a beautiful speech. Um, She's very encouraging every year of the winners of of this prize. Yeah. So I saw we were in COVID, a COVID lockdown, and Mm -hmm. it was 2021, and it was one month before the deadline. And I remember the tagline was be bold, be fearless, you know, enter your work. And I thought, Cheryl, you know what? I've lived a life now. I'm in my early 40s. I think I've got some lessons that I can share, not in a preachy way, with women, young women especially, from multicultural backgrounds. Uh, and so in that month, I the, the entry called for three chapters, the first three chapters, uh, an overview of the rest of the book, summary, setting, all this stuff. Now, I've been a music journalist for decades, but writing creative nonfiction is a whole nother beast. And so I basically had to teach myself a craft in a very short amount of time. So I did that. I immersed myself for a month. I drove my husband and daughter insane, but I gave it my all and I somehow eventually won and beat 850 people and won the Ritual Prize in 2021. And then so That's that was three Yeah. Oh, th- thank you. It's I still can't believe it. And my mum, she's so like, she's so funny. She's so down to earth. She's like, every time I said, Mom, I made the short list or I made the long list, then I made the short list. She's like, what? Our story's not that interesting. I'm like, well, I think it is because it's getting somewhere. <laughs> um, and then yeah, so I won that. And then I wrote an extra two chapters because you the ritual prize includes mentorship. And I had the incredible Vanessa Radnich at Hachette yeah. as my mentor, and she's so she hit mentor. the jackpot. I, I hit the jackpot. One of the most yeah. genuine, loving <clears throat> people I've ever met. Oh, she's wonderful. Uh, yeah, she she truly is. And so, after five chapters, she went in and pitched it and said in in the acquisitions meeting. So I'm learning all these new terms, and she said we're we're happy to offer you an agreement. And so. Yeah. Here we are. This is a story of someone that I always felt very singular in who I am and what I do, and I couldn't believe that this story was going to be told across Australia and New Zealand, and now actually this month, the beginning of February, it's gone on sale in the UK as well, and it's all crazy. And final destination is hopefully the US where I spend a lot of time, which I'm sure we'll get into. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. Okay, so it is a memoir. So I want to talk about firstly about growing up, and I want to talk about identity because mm. we are very similar. I mean, my parents. I, I think I said this. They they came in the fifties, and there's six people in my family, six kids, siblings, and four of four of the siblings were born in Lebanon, and two of the siblings mm. were born here. Were born mm. in Sydney. That's me, and my sister Margaret, but. Definitely in terms of identity, I grew up feeling different mm. and feeling definitely um, on the outer. I would, you know, we grew up in Glebe and it wasn't mm. very multicultural. Um, mm. And so lots and lots of stories of hardship and racism that were very poor. You know, my parents were yeah. struggling, you know, with that. I've said this before, but I'll tell you, you probably don't know it, but my parents came from Sarte, the north of Lebanon, mm-hmm. near mm-hmm. Um, Tripoli. And there was a man called um, Antoine Antlaffet and mm-hmm. uh, he had 
immigrated earlier and there was this community of Lebanese Australians and they owned a, a butcher in Redfern. And on top of the butcher was one room, one kitchen, one bathroom. And as families arrived into Sydney, he would let them have that space until they found their feet. And we were there for over a year, six mm. kids and two adults, mm. one room, one bathroom, one kitchen. Oh, and yeah. they were they were happy days. Absolutely. Mm. My great-grandfather was one of the first men to come from his village, um, Ban. It's a really small village. Whereabouts? Ben is in the north. It's next oh, to Bashari. Okay. Yeah, next Those to Prusos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, those northerners they like to they like to pack up and leave back in those days. But he, when he got here, he was sponsoring all new families to come through from Ben. Um, so I, I sometimes think, like, where would I be without? like people like your parents or my grandparents, great-grandparents, considering the state of our motherland at the moment and those sacrifices that they made really made me. And I talk about that in the introduction of the book. My grandmother was a very, you know, she had seven kids and she had an alcoholic husband, uh, physically abusive. She worked three jobs. She used to work on Sydney Railways at Redfern. She used oh, to work... Wow. Yeah, she used to work on the railways. She was a machine attendant. She did oh, mm. She worked there for over 40 years um, with seven children and a, and a husband that didn't contribute very much at all. And so she was a hard worker, salt of the earth, very resilient, whereas my mum, who's one of her seven children and in the middle, is a bit more of a dreamer. Um, my mum was born here, so she was afforded, you know, she still went through a lot. She was born in the 1950s, so she went through her fair share of racism and discrimination. But, you know, she was afforded a little bit more than my grandmother was. So she got to, she wanted to be in the circus. That was a big dream. And she was a bit more of a dreamer, not so what much What was she going to do in the circus? Oh, she wanted to fly on the trapeze. You know, it's oh, so wow. sad. Yeah, because yeah. her father, because her father was very, very strict, very old school, made her leave school at 14, didn't believe girls should be doing anything but working in a factory or cleaning the house. She had these big dreams that she never got to realise. And I always say I'm the legacy of my mum and my grandmother because I was able to see my, because my mum raised me as a single mother, my father and her divorced when I was very little. So I was raised by my mum and my grandmother and the combination of those two women, a dreamer and a doer, made me uh, achieve so much in life. So I'm very grateful for that. Mm. Yeah. Um, talk to me about, because, I mean, you know, I guess a little bit in terms of I don't know a lot about hip-hop, right, and for me <laughs> to um, see a Lebanese-Australian mm. interested in hip-hop was quite mm. a surprise. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So it could be um, generational as well because I'm yeah, a older that, than you. Yeah, that could be. Um, well, hip-hop in Australia took off in the early 80s uh, around the Burwood area, you know, very much an inner west thing because it was much more working class, as we know. Is that right? Then. Yeah. Um, and so it's always been extremely multicultural. And Lebanese Australians have been part of it from day one, alongside, you know, African immigrants, Polynesian immigrants, uh, Southeast Asian immigrants. So, yeah, I loved hip hop since I was a child. I felt like 
it spoke to me. My parents, my aunties, my family always loved R&B soul music, you know, from the 70s growing up, early 80s. Disco, they were into, had all those good, cool records, Shalimar and all these groups. So growing up in the inner west, when I was eight to nine, we moved to the central coast. My mum, my grandmother and my little sister, because we lived on Parramatta Road in Summerhill and uh, my sister had a really bad cough. She had asthma and they thought, well, let's move to the beaches. It might be better for her. So that was a huge culture shock at that age to be kind of ripped out of this melting pot and thrown into home and away, basically. Um, So hip-hop became my best friend because hip-hop at that point was about um, empowerment and about being, you know, self-pride. And I understood that these black artists with their pro-black consciousness were speaking to their people, but I was... I guess, canny enough to interpret it for my own message, right? So from a very young age, I've always revered African-Americans as a community, not only just for hip-hop, but obviously for the strides that they make and the rest of us follow when it comes to fighting racism and all of the movements that we all sort of pick up on after they lead the way. Uh, But with hip-hop especially, you know, the lyrics made me fall in love with words so and, even yeah. even if you were how many generations Australian did you say five generations? Three, oh no, three. three. Well, my, my three. grandmother came here when she was ten, so three. Okay, yeah, three. yeah, yeah. That you still felt a point of difference to others. Absolutely, around. and and funny because I don't speak Arabic or Greek. Oh wow. Um, yeah, but in when I moved to the Central Coast, mm. there's there's examples in the book where. We invited, because, you know, Cheryl, we're, you know, with neighbours and as soon as we moved in the house, we thought, well, why aren't they inviting us over? Like, this is what we do. We invite people over. The, the <laughs> I just, like that here in the US and people yeah, think I'm strange. Yeah, know? like why aren't these people sort of saying, come in for coffee, come in. <laughs> like my uncle, my uncle's a truck driver, so there'd always be pineapples from Queensland. Come in yeah. for a pineapple. Come in. Anyway, but no one was inviting us, so we invited the lady next door over and my grandmother was making kibbe on the stove and I'll never forget as a child I'm sitting at the kitchen table and this woman goes, she put her hand over her mouth and she's like, oh, my God, ew, what is that? And I saw my grandmother's face like just so dejected mm. and I, I, I recognised at a very young age what racism can do to a person mm. and it, how it can knock the wind out of you. And I say in the book, as I'm sure you know, you don't know how you're going to react to each individual racist episode because you react differently sometimes. Sometimes you're just like my grandmother was because she's feisty, my grandma. She'll give it to the best of people. But in that moment I saw her cower because the breath had been knocked out of her. She was so shocked that this woman of her age could could act like that, be so ignorant, right? And then other times you just go, you know, you could react violently. You don't know how you're going to react to those incidents. So, yeah, I learned very early on, and I was called WOG multiple times up there, and I'd never heard so, that word before. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah I, it's funny. You know what happened yeah. to you, I think? Yeah. Because mm. we we were brought up in Glebe, and yeah. by the time your generation came, you yeah. probably weren't going to experience racism in the to the same degree, right? No. So what right, you were right. experiencing up the central coast 
yeah. what I was experiencing in Glebe when I was a child. 100%. 100%. Don't you think? Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I just want to go back to food a little bit because that memory just mm-hmm. came to me while talking mm-hmm. to your grandma. We lived in Glebe on Dargan Street. We had a corner shop. And my mother, she, cooked, she sewed glow mesh purses as well. And my dad worked in a factory. I mean, this is right. what it took for those people. Of course. To get ahead. Yeah. 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 But she was always, you know, she was sending us to neighbor's house to pick vine leaves and, yeah. you know, we'd always come back with a bowl of vine leaves for the neighbor that yeah. we'd the vine leaves from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this Chinese family moved in and my mum noticed that they were isolated, right? Now, the woman couldn't speak English and my mother mm. didn't have a lot of English. But, mm. you know, they used to exchange food and then they started teaching each other different recipes. So we started oh. eating Chinese food. And do you know I still cook one of those dishes? Oh, wow. Things, yeah. Oh, Isn't that I a magical that. connection? Yeah. Oh, I just and, and I no love language. Knowing. No language. Yeah. And do you know how heartening that is to hear because so many immigrants shut the door behind them on the new arrivals? Mm. So to hear that your mother and family embraced the newer arrival Mm. It's so heartening because, I, you know, mm. I remember speaking to a man. I was working at Channel 10 for a little while and our one of our security guards, he had just arrived from Pakistan and we're talking about issues and immigration. And, Cheryl, this man was waiting for his visa and was saying we should shut the gates. I'm like, bro, you're not even in yet. Like, mm. you know, like I, I, it blew my mind. It that makes me crazy. Makes it it me drives crazy. me crazy. That, that, as they call it now, like lateral violence in terms of I'm okay, I don't care about the next person. Mm. It, yeah, it, that drives me insane. So that's a mm. beautiful story. Mm-mm. I love it. I just remembered it. Yeah. So you get expelled once, twice. <laughs> Um, so see, yeah, I would have been, I'm a different generation. You could not yeah, get yeah. expelled in my house. You would have been in big trouble. Oh, well, I'll explain what happened and why I, it was the opposite for me. So in year six, I was awarded a scholarship to a private school in the inner West. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge deal. I, I knew I wanted to be a so journalist a already. I was smart and I was one of those annoying smarties that never paid attention in class and was a chatterbox and a um, bit of a rabble rouser but always did pretty good in my schoolwork. So I got this scholarship and it was a dream come true for me because I knew I wanted to be a journalist even back then. Dream come true for my mum as a single mum and 
the school was a nightmare, turned out to be a nightmare. I was bullied incessantly from day one. Uh, they told me, don't tell anyone you're on a scholarship because, you know, you just want to keep something like that pri private. But, Cheryl, how do you keep that private? People see where you live. You meet girls. They they know. And, and why should you? You know, why shouldn't you be proud of who you are? And uh, so I was tormented for two and a bit years. And then in the beginning of year nine, it all came to a head with the bully of the school. I always say it's so strange that Looking for Alabrini came out in 1992 and then I lived it. I literally lived that movie almost in many ways in the beginning of um, 95, I believe that was, when I got expelled. And Melina Marketa went to Rosebank, which is where I ended up after I got expelled. Do you know uh, Melina? No, I don't. And I was just I told. I do. I do. I, bet I do. do. Well, like you know everybody. Hey, listen, you know what I'm going to do when I get back? Yeah. We're, we're going to get together and I'll, I'll get you in, in touch with Melina. Oh, I, I, um, I stalked Melina for years. She worked at Target at Leichhardt at, after the book came out and I read the book and I loved it so much and I was working in yeah. library and I would just go to Target to watch yeah. her serve in people. In Marketplace. Yeah, yeah to serve yeah. people. All she was doing yeah. was yeah. And then yeah. I only really just met her quite recently. And you called me a bloody stalker in the beginning of this. That's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, it just wasn't social media. It was in-person stalking. Um, and I uh, met her for the first time. It would have been before COVID, but maybe only five or six years ago. And now we're just, we're besties. Oh, I yeah. believe it. I was just yeah. speaking. Her, her ears must be burning because this yeah. morning I was speaking to Rosebank because I'm doing a keynote for them for International Women's Day and coming back. Oh, wonderful. To talk to, to, talk to the kids and yeah. they said that they had asked her to do a panel and with me on it, but they said she doesn't like to do a lot of speaking engagements. She had declined and I was like, oh, no, because, like, I would die to meet her. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, I can so make that happen for you. Somewhere. Oh, thank you. You're like the fairy <laughs> Lebanese godmother. I love it. Well, uh, do you know, Karima <laughs> has me in her phone as fairy yeah. godmother. Oh, wow. Well, see, great minds. Great <laughs> minds. There you go. There you go. Well, yeah. So, okay. um, all right. So, yeah, you're so at the that's school. what happened. So, you're being bullied. I'm at the school, being bullied, and she physically attacked me and she said, what are you going to do about it? Knowing that she'd been harassing me, knowing I was on a scholarship, knowing there wasn't really much I could do about it. And so I beat the shit out of her. And then um, I got expelled and she was allowed to stay and her father donated a BMW to the school raffle. Yeah. So um, wow. that was a really hard time for me because I was already hanging out in Burwood doing teenage things and my mum thought, well, that's the end of it. You know, Simone's gone. <laughs> She's not going to be on a path to whatever. But Mr. Hawley was a beautiful Irish man. He was the principal of Rosebank and he took me in and then I ended up becoming the school captain there and, uh, you know, the rest is history. But Yeah, yeah. Tell me because, you know, we will run out of time. So I mm. just want to get to the New York bit. Yeah, Why sure. New York and how did that happen? New York, I felt like, was my spiritual home. It was somewhere I'd always wanted to live since I was young. I mean, I fell in love with hip-hop as a child, and that's the mecca, as they say, for hip-hop music. 
And I started after high school, I went to uni, I went to UTS and did journalism. And straight out of uni, I started Australia's first hip hop and R&B magazine, because I was applying for cadetships at the ABC and SBS. And even though I had more experience than all of the other students, because I was already working at that point for a magazine publisher called Terra Planet at Juice Magazine, which mm-hmm. was a music magazine. I was getting knocked back. Uh, Well, I I mean, we've seen how the ABC have behaved recently. Oh, look, yeah. I I find that deeply disappointing. Oh, look, I work for Media Diversity Australia now and my job is running programs to get young journalists from multicultural backgrounds in the industry. But at the same time, we're fighting for Mm. their cultural safety while Mm. they're there. So... I started my own thing, you know, as I say, I didn't want to sit at the table. I made my own table and I started a hip hop and R&B magazine, did that for a number of years, somehow parlayed that, that's such a hip hop word, parlayed. I parlayed that into uh, an opportunity in New York City to work for the biggest online retailer of urban fashion because hip hop clothing was a whole big thing back then. And they gave me the job as their inaugural content and lifestyle manager. And they flew me from Australia to New York for three days for the job interview. And when I said to them, why me? Like, this is the home of hip hop journalism. Why me from Australia? They said, you are a hustler. You have built a magazine about this culture on the other side of the world in a not very welcoming environment. And we feel like you could do some great things here. And and my bosses were just amazing, just amazing. And so I, in January 2007, I landed in the middle of winter with the proverbial suitcase and a dream, and I got to stay for 10 years and it was just wow. an incredible time. Yeah. So did they, I mean, because, you know, that's hard. I mean, New York's not cheap. Did no. they put you up? Did you, what kind of financial support did you get to set up? Yeah, they, well, not not too much. I mean, they supported me maybe, I think it was the first month they looked after for rent while I was, well, I was in a hotel for the first two weeks looking for an apartment. I knew I wanted to live in Harlem. So I found something in Harlem straight away. And the salary was really good, Cheryl. When I think about back then, I was 26, 27. And I think I was on like maybe 60 to 70 K US in 2007. Plus a a 10 grand bonus at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. So it was incredible. And and I was doing what I loved. I got to start a blog on their website. I started on camera interviews. I was interviewing like people that are huge stars now, Nicki Minaj, all these rappers and singers. I've heard and, of her. Yes, I knew you would. That's why I'm like, let me think of someone Cheryl will know. So it was a great run, Cheryl. And then I, but I had some bumps towards the end. And then I came down very sick with Crohn's disease. And that's why, yeah. yeah, So that's why my mum after 10 years was like, look, you've had a great run. I was literally life or death with that illness. And the American healthcare system, as you know, is evil. So and Australia isn't getting any easier either. So it was time to come back. And yeah. how did you feel about coming back? Because in the time that I do it, and I'm only three months, right, and yeah. I go back and forward yeah. and I still have a home, but there's always yeah. a transition period of kind of working your way back in. 
You know, the, yes. the, because it's the shock of the new, the shock of the difference. Oh, absolutely. Different lifestyle. And I've said this before, you know, I feel that the only thing I have in common with my American friends is language. Everything else mm. culturally is so different. Well, when I came home, everyone was saying to me, you worked in media in New York City for 10 mm. years. You yeah, will get well, a job in a you will get a job in Australia straight away. Would you believe, Cheryl, it was the, and I knew it was going to be hard. No one cared where I worked. There's, there is a huge disconnect, especially when it comes to hip-hop culture and music journalism. I mean, music journalism was on its way out slowly, you know, but when I got home at the end of 2016. Now it's almost, it's on, you know, flatline at the moment. It was really hard. Like career-wise it was hard to get my bearings. And then also uh, culturally, I felt like, where am I? Where do I belong? I got home and I'm turning on the TV. The Today Show Sunrise, this is 2016, still looked as white as it did when I was a little girl. I said Mm. nothing's changed in 10 years. Mm. And then, you know, as fate would have it, Lena the CEO, Lila Nachnus uh, of, of Diversity Arts Australia, and then Antoinette Latouf, who was the co-CEO of um, the co-founder of Media Diversity Australia, got in touch with them, ended up working with both organisations and just finding my feet again. But, you know, that that took time. It definitely took time. And did you meet your partner here? Can I talk about that? Can I? Of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, what? that's um, a that is a story of hope for anyone out there that needs it. Um, yeah, I, I came home. I came home very single. Uh, I had dated every every dickhead under. The, can I swear? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, every dickhead <laughs> under the sun in New York, and I. Th- my grandmother, God bless her, my sister. Uh, when I got home, she said, uh, "You're on the shelf now. You're old, and no one wants you." Got to yeah. love straight talking Lebanese grandmothers. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you're on the shelf after 21, aren't you? You're on the yeah, yeah. You're on the <laughs> shelf, and I was in. I was in my late 30s. I was yeah. gone. Yeah, yeah. Way uh, gone. And then, yeah, way gone. But in the book, I talked about how my sister says when my health got better, she said, let's go on Tinder. And I said, Tinder? How embarrassing. She was like, bro, no one knows you here. Calm down. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> like I, family, man, I love my family. And so I went on there, Cheryl, the first day. I said, all right, I'll swipe a few times. He pops up. It says he's from Harlem. He's in Australia. And I said, oh, okay, you know what? Honestly, if, even if we become friends, I'm sure we've got a lot in common because we'll understand each other, right? And so I swiped. He swipes back. He calls me. He's like, I'm old-fashioned. I want to call you. And the rest is history. We're married. We've got an almost six-year-old daughter. And um, we understand each other on a very beautiful level where we don't really feel like we belong in one place. And mm-hmm. We have a lot in common. Um, yeah. Why the so, hell did you meet him in Harlem? That would have been a better story. I know, but he always says to me, Simone, well, this is what's so funny. He was living here in Australia when I was in the States and he went to a party on my block at the National Black Theatre in Harlem. That's the same block I lived on. And he said, we could have crossed paths in the street. He said, but you wouldn't have liked me back then because I'm a nice guy and you weren't dating and you weren't dating nice guys. And you know what? I wasn't, Cheryl. Like I had to grow up a lot, you know, to appreciate who he is. So, yeah. Now, listen, Simone, we're out of time. 
Um, <laughs> I knew this would happen. The book is called Tell Her She's Dreaming. Yeah. Congratulations. It's available. You've got to have the Aussie saying, Aussie accent, right? Tell yeah, her yeah, she's yeah. dreaming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's dreaming. Um, congratulations. And I'm, I feel you. that one of the happy happy moments, I guess, that have come out of what's happening in Palestine because it's, as you and I both know, it's complete horror, Yes. Um, is that I've connected with some really beautiful people and you're one of them. Yes. Oh, amen. Oh, don't make me cry. I, I feel the I feel the same. It is the only light that's come out mm. of this most mm. horrific situation I've ever witnessed in my life is knowing that a lot of people have let me down, mm. but a lot of people have, you know, reignited my faith as well. So it's been an absolute honour to meet you and you are a fairy godmother. So <laughs> we're grateful for you. <laughs> Thank you, lovely. You're welcome. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.